Welcome to the start of Season 5, Hushlings. As the show grows, we'd like to realign our focus to expand our reach and initiate other Hushlings into the society. Help us to spread the word of the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour by joining our community Discord server, following us on all our social medias, and joining our live shows. Tell a friend about our show. Hang a poster on a message board. Mention us on your social medias. We want you to be a part of the society, to discuss your conspiracies, your thoughts, the things that keep you up at night. Thank you for all of your support throughout our show, and we look forward to connecting with each and every one of you. Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. I went to concentration camp when I was 13 years old. Why? I lived in a small town in Poland. So the German come over and they say, if you go to work with us, so your parents could be saved. So I said, okay, I'm going. Didn't take long. A month later, my mother went right straight to the crematorium because she couldn't work. And I was, I went to the Auschwitz. You know about Auschwitz, Birkenau. And over there was Dr. Mengele. He was the one who stayed and told you, left or right. So, and I was 13 years old then. 13 years old in Europe, so the different than in America, 13 years old. I come to Dr. Mengele, he asked me, how old are you? So I said, I am 18. I was lying, because if I wouldn't say 18, and how, why I said 18, I don't know. Maybe God was giving me the brains to say it. Because I didn't, was, I wasn't so smart and so quick to know it. If I, if I were to tell him 13, I would go right straight to the crematorium. And this is how I wind up over there. But my mother, a month later, he wanted, he took it to Icewitz because she couldn't work, you know. So I lost everybody, you know. Greetings, Hushtillians. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike, and we're joined as always by our fellow historian, Slick Frank Sanders. Slick Frank Sanders here. Welcome to our fifth season, and boy do we have a season for you. We do, we do. What 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 season is this? Season five. five. Oh, put put up your fist. Open all your fingers. That's what it be. Five. It has been a great first four seasons. I am excited to get going in season five. We have some exciting things to look forward to. I hope you boys are ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Season five is a banger. Our most controversial season yet. I would say. I would say so. Yes. Yes, we have some very uh, interesting topics to cover this season. We are thinning the veil. (laughs) Hushlings, before we get into this brand new episode of Season 5, we want to inform you that this installment is going to be very sensitive and graphic in nature. There will be discussion of war, murder, and the Holocaust. If this topic is offensive, we have plenty of other lighter episodes, obviously, from our catalog. You can skip right over this one if it bothers you. We're okay with it. For our 41st debriefing, we investigate Holocaust denial or Holocaust revisionism, in which 
people believe that the Holocaust was exaggerated or didn't even happen. In this installment, we dive deep into the beliefs, some of the ideology, arguments, the propaganda, and the prejudices that drive groups and revisionists to their conclusion that the Holocaust did not occur as it was. Yes, before we go any further, we usually bang the longer episodes out in two parts. This one is massive, and we could not do it in two parts, so we will be doing it in three parts, and it will be spread out. We are going to cover part one of Holocaust Denial, obviously here. Holocaust Denial part two will be debriefing 51, which will be the season premiere of season six, and also we will follow it up with with the conclusion in part three of Holocaust Denial as our season opener for season seven, debriefing 61. But each episode we have wrapped up neat and tidy so that there is a satisfying conclusion to each episode. This will be a long one. But before we burn the history books, make sure to follow us on all our social medias. As you know them, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also hit up our Discord. We love to talk and chat in our Discord. If you don't have Discord, it's very easy to get. You just download it, go to our website, and you can find that link in the top right corner and join right from there. Also, we will be working on a new Twitch channel. I believe Frank has already started gaming on it. I am getting into it. So join us over there. You might see one of us, two of us, all three of us, but... Come on over, hang out with us, play some video games. Uh, we'll talk some conspiracies, answer your questions maybe. You know, little interaction with the preceptors. And as I just mentioned, you can go over to the official website of the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, www.hushhushsociety.com. Very easy. Very easy. Where you can find all our debriefings, our declassified discussions, cryptid chronicles, blogs, news... Hush Hush Society merch, as well as leaving the ever-coveted review. For those of you who listen to us on Spotify, there is now a rating option to leave on podcasts. We would absolutely love it if you were to leave us a rating. You can also leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser.com, and the Good Pods app. These help us to become a better show. Also, Hushlings, the Hush Hush Society Patreon is in full swing. We have two beautiful tiers to choose from, the Hustronaut tier at $3 and the Hushling tier at 5 packed with exclusive segments, debriefings, and merch drops. Stay up to date. Subscribe today at www.patreon.com slash hushhushsociety. One last tidbit before we get into the episode here. Previously, we had our X-Files watch party on Discord only for our Patreon patrons, but... We now have it open and free for any of our little hushlings. If you guys want to join over at our Discord, like I said, you can find the link in the top right corner of our website. Every week we'll be starting to watch The X-Files from Season 1, Episode 1, and we will just chill out, relax, pop some popcorn, put a hole in the bottom of the tub, and let your girl go to town. We should be starting that within the next week or two. Yes, we're going to start it very soon. If you follow us on any of our social medias, you can easily find our Discord link pretty much anywhere. Shall we get into this historical event? Let us start with a quote. The best political weapon is the weapon of terror. Cruelty commands respect. Men may hate us, 
but we don't ask for their love, only their fear. Heinrich Himmler. Psychopath. Piece of shit. Anyways. So as we get into this, not many people may know what Holocaust denial or Holocaust revisionism is. Let's get into it. Holocaust denial, also known as Holocaust revisionism, is the attempt to deny Nazi Germany's atrocities against Jews and others, such as gypsies, people with disabilities, Poles, Soviet prisoners of war, and Afro-Germans, as well as Jehovah's Witnesses and homosexuals. Holocaust revisionists want to erase the past in an attempt to make Nazism an acceptable political alternative today, which is pretty scary in its own right. Imagine having a National Socialist Party. Welcome to America. Yeah. <laughs> Many people have present and past ties with hate groups that are trying to shed that image by displaying themselves as seekers of historical truth rather than spewing the hateful bigotry that you hear. Holocaust denial is an important tool for anti-Semites, and on July 24th of 1996, Harold Covington, the founder of the Northwest Front, a neo-Nazi group, explained why. Take away the Holocaust and what do you have left? Without their precious Holocaust, what are the Jews? Just a grubby little bunch of international bandits and assassins and squatters who have perpetrated the most massive cynical fraud in human history. Oof. Yeah, big oof. I mean, what else would you expect from a neo-Nazi? So. True. true yeah. True. You're right. This guy died a couple years ago, actually. I was looking, Thank looking God. into him. Very good, good for him. Good for him. We have a few more quotes from historians and authors as well. The famous David Irving is a prolific English author and avid Holocaust denier. He once stated, It, the Holocaust, is something like a religion. The intellectual adventure is that we are reversing this entire trend within the space of one generation. That in a few years' time, no one will believe this particular legend anymore. Which is actually kind of happening. They will say, as do I that atrocities were committed. Yes, hundreds of thousands of people were killed, but there were no factories of death. All that is, is a blood libel against the German people. Damn. That's a Brit too, right? Jeez. Before we go any further, one thing researching all of this, a lot of the Holocaust deniers and revisionists you would think would be backwoods type of maybe KKK, neo-Nazi dumbasses, but there's actually historians and authors and people who you may look at and go, well, you have a brain, right? <laughs> One of those such is Harry Elmer Barnes, who is an American historian, historical revisionist, and Holocaust denier, and he goes on to say, what is deemed important today is not whether Hitler started war in 1939 or whether Roosevelt was responsible for Pearl Harbor, but the number of prisoners were allegedly done to death in the concentration camps operated by Germany during the war. These camps were first presented as those in Germany such as Dachau, Belsen, Buchenwald, Sachsenhausen, and Dora, but it was demonstrated that there had been no systematic extermination in those camps. Attention was then moved to Auschwitz, Treblinka, Belzic, Chelmno, Genoska, Tarnow, Ravensbrück, Mothesen, Bresnia, and Birkenau, which does not exhaust the list that appears to have been extended as needed. It was very tough to say all those camps. <laughs> you did great. You did fantastic. A plus. Uh, Ravensbrück and Birkenau and Auschwitz. Those are big ones in history because those are where you have most of the accounts of the people that are actually still living or at least have been interviewed in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. 
where they say that this mass death and systematic murder actually happened. We get into it later in depth, but I watched a documentary yesterday about the nurses in these places. They all said that they were only doing what they were told, but they knew the number of people that were killed, especially in hospitals. Not a lot of people realize that Auschwitz itself was a massive campus. So there were actually like three different camps within Auschwitz. So you had like Auschwitz one and you had three. Auschwitz two, but you also had Birkenau and Birkenau was part of Auschwitz. So Auschwitz was where the concentration camp was, where the work camps were, where the housing was. And then Birkenau was where the gas chambers were and the furnaces to burn the bodies. If you went to Birkenau, you knew what was up. Harry Barnes believes that these camps weren't extermination camps, but he still doesn't deny that there was definitely people who died there. Mm -hmm. That part, I think, is non-deniable both fronts of this. People actually died in these camps. That's a trend that I saw with a lot of these, I guess you could say, credible revisionists, these authors and these people that have master's degrees and stuff like that. They don't necessarily deny that the Holocaust happened as a whole, but they tend to deny the large quantities of numbers that we see in death tolls coming from these camps. Well, people died, but not six million. It's also been called the big lie. This big lie is especially painful for Holocaust survivors and all those who lost loved ones to Nazi mass murder who are confronted by people who deny their suffering and loss. To understand where the revisionists are coming from, if you can even do that, you'd have to see some of the viewpoints that they present. One of the arguments is that Nazi Germany was the victim of a conspiracy contrived by the Allies to brand Nazi Germany the villain of World War II. Uh, I think they kind of did that to themselves, but... They're saying that the Allied nations were pushing the Holocaust narrative to make sure Germany was the villain. What would the Americans and British gain out of this other than to basically humiliate and demilitarize Germany like they did at the end of World War I? There was mass poverty, inflation, social disadvantage, and unemployment. Does that sound familiar, folks? Mm. This is the time of the Great Depression. Germany's coming out of the Great Depression. They need to villainize someone. So what do the Germans do? They take this young military man coming out of nowhere and saying that he's going to fix all their problems and all they had to do was get rid of a certain class of people. It's working into the psyches of very desperate people. The major thing is, is the poverty, the inflation, the social disadvantage. These are major things that we're dealing with in our country right now. It's definitely social disadvantage has been happening for a while. Unemployment, obviously, during our current situation. Inflation, definitely during our current situation. Poverty has kind of been across the board for a very long time. Mike, you and I have had a conversation where I'm like, man, America's kind of like not on the same scale, but in the same socioeconomic and psychological area. America's kind of where Germany's at in 1929. There's also another point that the United States and Great Britain concocted a wild atrocity stories about the Nazis to cover up their own war crimes. There are many more war crimes that I researched in this, but this just kind of gives you a buffet of certain things. Following the liberation of Normandy, British troops engaged in small-scale looting. 
which are in violation of the Hague Conventions. In retaliatory attacks also on local civilians who had basically hidden Germans in their cellars and closets and wherever they could hide them from British soldiers, they burned selected cottages, and most in Seedorf, Germany, on April 21st, 1945. Now, that's pretty late in the war. Get in sea floors! Would you be shocked if you would found out that the Allied troops did some of the similar things that the Nazis had done as war crimes, like looting, raping people? No. No, no I, I wouldn't be shocked. That would go as far as to completely ignore the savagery of every soldier that goes to war. Now, that's not saying that there aren't brave soldiers, but it takes away from the overall experience of a soldier that has probably been fighting for years at this point, maybe some of them. And you're part of this massive mass casualty war and it's brutal and it's fucking nonstop for all these years. Somebody's psyche at that point thinks... I'm kind of owed this. There's a thought in your head like, I've been fighting, I've been seeing my friends die, I've been killing, and now that the war is done and it's coming to a close, why not? Why not take a few trinkets from here and steal from people's houses? And I think it's also that anger and animosity just coming out in a different way. I don't know. Maybe just the way that I see it. But I definitely could see soldiers from either side, from anyone that's involved in war, acting a totally different way after being exposed to all that. I think that's just like a part of war. When I think of war, that's an aspect of it that I include in my thought of it, that sort of looting, the violence, the, the rape that has nothing to do with eliminating your foe. Hmm. It dates back to the Vikings, to the Mongolians, and, you know, you, you see it in the Civil War, and I'm sure it was in World War One and in World War Two, just not Vietnam. as well documented. Oh, yeah. Major, major things that happened in Vietnam that were not okay. According to historian Sean Logden, violence against German prisoners and civilians who refused to cooperate with the British Army, quote, could be ignored or dismissed. During and directly after the war, a MI-19 prisoner of war facility known as the London Cage had been used. This facility was the subject of torture allegations since 1947. It was unearthed that at the facility there were methods of mental and physical torture throughout interrogations. During late 1944, when the army was stationed in Belgium and the Netherlands, it was introduced to the authorities that there was a, quote, rise in indecency with children, with abusers taking advantage of the atmosphere of trust that had been created with local families. While the army attempted to investigate allegations and some men were convicted, it was an issue that received little publicity. Yikes. See, that's kind of fucked up. That's very fucked up. So now we're talking allied armies that were stationed in Belgium and the Nether Netherlands were being indecent with children to go along with the thought process here of hiding your own atrocities. Do you introduce a whataboutism where you're like, well, what about the Germans? They went and killed millions of people. Can't really use that as an argument. It's fucking atrocious either way. Well, he did it too. Yeah, it's just it's, that's what I mean about, you know, the whataboutism. Sexual assault definitely occurred after the British forces arrived in Germany as well, probably every single country that they were in. Mm. For example, though, found this one. Three women at Nutstadt um Rubenberg were raped on a single day in April of 1945. Also, there's a story of two soldiers who attempted to coerce two girls into the nearby forests. Upon refusal, 
One was dragged, she began screaming, and it's quoted again, one of the soldiers pulled a gun to silence her. Whether intentionally or in error, the gun went off, hitting her in the throat and killing her. Fuck. There are other accounts of crimes at sea which include, but most definitely aren't limited to, unrestricted submarine warfare, the shooting of shipwreck survivors, and attacking non-combat ships, or merchant and civilian vessels. Didn't the Germans do that too, though? Mm. Well, I'm sure the Germans were taking out civilian vessels especially all the time. I was watching something the other day, and when the Allies were evacuating out of France after five days because the French just fucking folded, they were evacuating out of France, and the British was using tons and tons and tons of civilian vessels to attempt to get them back to their naval ships that were a little bit off the coast. So I'm sure the Germans were going to town on civilian vessels and cargo vessels and things of that sort. That's also a tactic of war. You're cutting off supply chain routes. Merchant vessels definitely make sense. So obviously if, if you as a German or any, anybody really, you see the enemy ship you know, even if it's not a warship, you see a ship and it's a cargo ship and it's heading towards Germany. Obviously, they're bringing in some sort of supply or some sort of backup or whatever it may be to your enemies. You're going to stop that. I think the worst of it is shooting shipwreck survivors. The British, along with other allied nations, primarily the United States, carried out air raids against enemy cities, including the bombing of Dresden, Germany, which killed approximately 8,000 people. While there was no agreement, treaty, convention, or other instrument governing the protection of the civilian population or civilian property from aerial attack prior to the war. Now we mentioned the Hague Conventions, and in the Hague Conventions, it did prohibit the bombardment of undefended towns. The question is, was Dresden undefended or not? The city, which had largely been unaffected by the war for most of the war, did have working rail connections to the Eastern Front and was an industrial and manufacturing center. An investigation by the Allied forces concluded that an air attack on Dresden was militarily justified because the city was defended. That's another part of the revisionist tale. They will say that the bombing of Dresden happened after the conclusion of the war, and it was kind of a retaliation hit. That is untrue. Dresden was hit months before the war ended. And as Dave mentioned, they were kind of supplying the front and supplying the enemy to help them win the war. That's always, I think, been major targets for air raids. I mean, we haven't seen air raids like that since, I guess, Vietnam. I'm just looking at pictures of Dresden right now. Jesus Christ. But all of Europe ended up looking like that for the most part. And imagine getting 48 hours of just carpet bombed. It happened about a solid month before Hitler supposedly killed himself. Definitely happened before the end of the war. One part of the conspiracy that we will explore later on in the episode is that the Jews joined the conspiracy in order to prey upon the sympathies of the world and extort money from post-war Germany in order to establish the state of Israel. That is something we will expand on further later down the road. We also have the point that Holocaust revisionists claim that the Holocaust is an exaggeration, if not an outright hoax, especially with the death statistics and how mass murder was not carried out, specifically through gas chambers and crematoriums. The Lauchter Report, issued in 1988 by Fred Lauchter, an American manufacturer of execution equipment, 
he states that there were far fewer hydrogen cyanide compounds in the walls of gas chambers at Auschwitz than in the walls of the disinfection chambers, and concludes that Zyklon B was not used to kill people, but rather for disinfection on a sporadic basis. Mm. According to Lauchner, it took a week to air out the gas chamber, and he goes on to say only 278 people could fit in a single gas chamber. He landed at this figure based on the fictitious assumption that a person standing takes up nearly a square meter of floor space, despite the fact that many people were stuffed into each square meter of the gas chamber. I had read a specific number of something like 10 people per square meter. He's saying that 278 people could fit in there, so that's one person taking up an entire square meter. So really look at it as almost 10 times that number, 2,700 people inside of one of these chambers at the same time. Yeah, no, I wouldn't go that far, but I also don't think that you can measure it by what the average person is taking up in terms of space, because the average person wasn't 65 pounds and extremely malnourished. These people were tiny. In a nutshell, like Frank just said, people were 65, maybe 85 pounds a full-grown adult, so you're the size of what, a seven, eight-year-old kid? They were skin and bones from what's shown. Pertaining to the cremation, he also states that 714 bodies per week could be burned in a single crematorium, and 315 per week could be burned realistically in his figures. So I guess about half also saying it doesn't work. This is contradicted not only by statements from former prisoners and survivors, but also by commanding officers and doctors, nurses, and people that worked at Auschwitz itself. According to the basic German document on crematorium prepared on June 28, 1943, by the Central Construction Board of Auschwitz, quote, the five in Auschwitz and Birkenau camps can burn 4,756 corpses in a 24-hour period, per this document. The Birkenau crematoria could burn 1.6 million bodies per year, end quote. So they literally had like a standard work for how this crematorium could work. If you look at the crematoriums in Birkenau and just how many there were and how many they could accommodate burning, as we just said, a little over 4,700 in a 24-hour period. So there had to be a lot of these crematoriums or at least a lot of the furnaces. If Birkenau and Auschwitz were not death camps, then why would you need to accommodate for so many body burnings? You had like a lot of people in Auschwitz, but why would you need to have enough crematoriums to burn 4,000 people a day? How many people were there and how many people died? I think that's their biggest argument and question on it. But inevitably, say you have 50,000 people in a camp, they're that malnourished, you know it's calculated. You know they're going to die and you have to dispose of them. While it might not have been calculated in, okay, we're going to horrifically kill people this way, but we're just going to do it in a different way. And then when they're no use to us and they're dead already, just that's where I think they were at. They definitely knew what they were doing. They also probably had massive burn pits too. I mean, there's pictures of mass graves. So mm -hmm. Yeah, mass graves. That's what I was thinking. Like Some Holocaust deniers claim that those, quote, few Jews who had perished died from natural causes or were legitimately executed by the Nazi state for actual criminal offenses. Mm, I also heard a lot of like typhoid fever. They were all people that were sick. Well, yeah, they're sick. They haven't eaten days. 
I could understand the malnourishment and them saying died of natural causes. The natural cause is, like you said, it's it's malnourishment and disease and their bodies falling apart. That doesn't count as a natural cause. No, it doesn't. I hate to keep saying it, but for anyone that that is listening to this episode, if you have any major statements, definitely email us if we missed anything, but don't jump the gun. We still have two more parts, and we go into all this stuff in length. Be patient. Let us complete the work. Hushlings, we will return after these brief messages. Buongiorno, Hushlings. Come grab a slice and knead the dough with us. As we travel to D.C. and pop into Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria. We take a seat and hack into the emails of Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, John Podesta. Where in 2016, WikiLeaks publicly published his emails. Allegedly, code words were found within the messages that connected several high-ranking Democratic Party officials. As well as several U.S. restaurants with an alleged human trafficking and child sex ring. We look into all of the groups and outlets that push this conspiracy into the light. Join the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Monday, February 14th. For debriefing 42. Pizzagate. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Some even argue that Hitler's intentions were peaceful. What the fuck? and that the real villains of the war were actually U.S. President Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and of course, the Jews. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain did travel to Munich to secure a guarantee that there would be no further German aggression. I believe this was in 1939 or so. It was right before England joined the war and before Hitler had invaded Poland, just before. And I recently saw a movie... It's on Netflix, anybody wants to watch it, from 2021 called Munich, The Edge of War. And I was like, oh, this might be pertained to some of the research because this is right where we were at. And we have to remember is that there were major loyalty issues between the SA and the SS, which were two branches of the Nazi party. And they all wanted absolute power. Hitler being the he- Hitler being basically on the SS side and the SA being the retaining military that was there before the Nazi party really, really, really took over. Whichever side took this is how the war was going to play out. I personally believe there were people in Germany that were conspiring and there were people on the other side that were spying to either assassinate him or get him out of power because they knew that he was not going to back down. A part of history that I didn't know, Neville Chamberlain before Winston Churchill was prime minister, he basically was like, okay, let's get them to stop. We just signed this treaty with them. He's not going to mobilize. He's not going to do this. But in return, Hitler was definitely lying and he still was going to do it. So it's just a pacification for a while. We'll definitely go into depth on that when we talk about more about the Nazis. The fact that there were people that were trying to kill this guy and get him out before this happened because they would rather have a normal war happen between two sides than have this guy take over all of Europe because the final solution was laid out. Taking out Hitler was actually an option if you know about Operation Valkyrie. So Operation Valkyrie later would go on to be made into a movie with Tom Cruise, uh, terrible. Tiny Tom Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the SA, the original German army, would take offense to what Hitler and the SS were doing, and they did plot to 
kill Hitler in the Wolfsden, which was like a, a military base, very remote. He had all his generals there and majors and all the top brass of the SS, and there was an attempt on his life. Of course, didn't happen, but you could see that there was, based upon this operation alone, there was a major divide within the ranks of the German army and the ranks of the German people in general. He had these very loyal officers and these very loyal men who would do anything that he said. And then you had people on the other side of it that had consciences and, and they cared and they didn't want to carry out these ridiculous and fucking horrible orders that were given. Germany was kind of a mess during World War II, honestly. I'd just like to clarify that the point that Hitler was peaceful and that Roosevelt and Churchill and the Jews were bad people is clearly and obviously an anti-Semitic statement. That's white supremacist shit, and I don't know what sort of mental gymnastics you would have to do to get behind that. To understand the conspiracy of revisionism, we also need to understand the deep history of the Jewish peoples and the xenophobia surrounding them. Holocaust denial is an updated version of an alleged Jewish conspiracy in which Jews use lies and extortion to gain advantage of everyone else. The common denominator to all Holocaust deniers is anti-Semitism. This brings us to some points about this entire conspiracy and what is going on, I guess, in the heads of revisionists and why they think the way they do. Mind you, the following list is not fact, yet opinions and prejudices from this viewpoint. We talk about the demonization of Jews. Since the Gospel of John and since the 4th century, influential figures in Christian theology have associated Jews with the devil or with demonic qualities. During the Middle Ages, Jews were typically portrayed as devil's children, with horns and bulging eyes, and associated with satanic features such as arrogance and devious logic. Similar depictions of Jews can also be found in 20th century Muslim texts. 20th century Muslim texts? Some new shit. Yeah, that's pretty recent. There is also ritual slaughter. Since ancient times, Jews have been falsely accused of killing Gentiles for ritual purposes. In Hellenistic Egypt, this was even sometimes accompanied by accusations of cannibalism. And in medieval Europe, beginning in the 12th century, it was often accompanied by accusations that Jews used their victims' blood to make matzah for the Jewish holiday of Passover. I've never heard that fucking conspiracy in my life until I found this. Because I thought that was a joke. Matzah's pretty pale, man. I don't see any red in matzah. What is matzah? It's a cracker. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fucking cracker. They say it's a flatbread, but it's cracker. You can make it into like a pita ball, like matzah balls, and you can change the consistency and stuff. Like, imagine having matzah ball soup and you're like, dude, why is it so fucking red? It's very irony. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Another one that's a little outlandish. The Wandering Jew. Around 400 AD, Christians viewed Jews as cursed people doomed to wander in misery until the end of days as testament of their own depravity and Christian superiority. The Wandering Jew was later developed as a wretched, lowly figure in Christian folklore. Saw that coming. It is said that a Jew who taunts Jesus on the way to his crucifixion is cursed to roam the earth until the end of days. That is a quote from that one segment. None of that makes any fucking sense to me. So it's just like, because you're a Jew, you're fucked for eternity? Is that what they're saying? I guess if you taunted Jesus, you had to be there. Oh. 
think about how Jewish people are portrayed in the Bible. Yeah. Like who betrayed Jesus? I mean, other than Judas. But at the same time, if you look at like Old Testament, Moses and his people, those people were Jews. Mm -hmm. They were Mm -hmm. not Christian. I never could understand the dichotomy of the Catholic Church versus Jewish people because there's obviously some overlay of Catholicism that sees Jewish people as like a holy people, but also evil on the other hand. I don't know. It's very weird. It's hard for me to process. Like, really think about it. Like, if he, I mean, just just based on those two stories alone. Are we just now dealing with a continuation of somebody having a grudge? It really goes to, like, who authored the Bible. There's the belief, not to dive too deep into it, obviously, but there's the belief that the Bible was not written by one person, but by many people. So many of those stories could be in direct opposition of each other just based on the fact that they were written by different authors. It's weird, or based on the environment at the time, or the thought of what Jewish people were versus Catholics at the time. Be an interesting time period to go back to. Yeah, interesting. Getting fucking crucified. Fucking ruthless, dude. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Well, the whole thing. The whole thing that we're talking about now was only eighty years ago. Ah, so we start to talk about dirt and disease. Jews have long been described literally or metaphorically as carriers of a physical defect, deformity, or disease, often associated with ugliness, weakness, dirt, and excrement. Jews were banned from German swimming pools and quarantined during the cholera and typhus epidemics of 1892. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, white racialists often perceived Jews as possessing inferior non-white racial characteristics. In Nazi Germany, Jewishness was often compared to a cancer. Jesus Christ. Since medieval times, Jewry has frequently been depicted as a wealthy, powerful, menacing, and controlling collectivity, demanding the sacrifice of others to their own greed. Jews have been associated with Mammon, the deity associated with money or term for money, and Moloch, the pagan god associated with human sacrifice, and a growing number of scholars have come to believe that Moloch refers to the Mulk sacrifice practice rather than a deity. Which is what we talked about in Bohemian Grove. Interesting, that connection with Moloch. Hmm. This brings us to bestialization, the German term Judensaw, which refers to obscene contact between Jews and female pigs, appeared in the 13th century in Germany and remained popular throughout Europe for several hundred years. That's one example. There's many examples. We didn't need to give them all. Are they comparing them to pigs or saying that they're fucking pigs? I would say probably both. That they have pig lovers. That's fucking crazy. Just think about the entire existence of your people. The entire time, all you've been told is the grossest, worst fucking thing about your heritage and your bloodline and what you are as a person. Just for thousands of years at this point. Holy fuck. (laughs) Let's get into the global conspiracy when it comes to this whole thing. In the conspiracy's most modern form, the Jews, or Zionists form a powerful secret global cabal that manipulates governmental institutions, banks, the media, and other institutions for malevolent purposes, undermining decent values. A little more on this global conspiracy. 
Believing in the fantasy of a secretive Jewish stranglehold on the global economy and mass media verifies the insight of Columbia University historian Richard Hofstadter. He is an American historian and public intellectual of the mid-20th century, and his work came to light using social psychology concepts to explain political history. He explored subconscious motives such as social status anxiety, anti-intellectualism, irrational fear, and paranoia as they propel political discourse and actions in politics. He found an apocalyptic strain and a belief in an impending confrontation between good and absolute evil and political extremism on both the right and the left. Hofstetter was aware that conspiracies peppered history's pages. However, political paranoia is enticing, especially to those Americans who longed for the security of a settled way of life such as the belief that history is a conspiracy in which evil forces are the shadowy driving mechanisms of human destiny. The global conspiracies, I think we've mentioned it a few times, but I guess believing that there is good and evil and there's two cabals going on? Yeah, this version of it, I think, is just pointing to the, the evil of it being the Jewish people. They talk about the Zionists, the globalists, you know, Alex Jones will talk about the globalists. <laughs> globalist elite pedophiles are out picking up your kids off the corner of the streets bringing them to Shambhala draining their bloods and putting it into their matzo ball soups <laughs> don't betray Alex Jones as this anti-Semite <laughs> well realistically any conspiracy that talks about Zionists in a poor light or talks about globalists is labeled as an anti-Semitic conspiracy. But I don't know. It's hard to say that it would be anti-Semitic. It's like if you saw the underpinning evil of the world, there was one person in control of the worst of the worst and doing the worst to humankind, and they turned out to be a clown. You know, and you were like, that dude's a clown, and you meant it in a derogatory term. You know, is somebody going to come after you and say, well, you're an anti-clown? <laughs> I'm using it, obviously, to avoid getting into any other uh, cultural backgrounds. But are you saying that this person is evil because they're a clown, or are you saying that, they're, that this person is evil because of the things that they've done? And they just so happen to be a clown. Yeah, exactly. You just don't like red noses, you fuck. Well, when you put it like that. <laughs> Stepping out of Europe, we have to give an example that I found in America. We can't forget that prejudices were already rooted in America since the beginning. And one notable figure you might not have known is Henry Ford. He model teed his way through this anti-Semitic attitude. Many Americans' worries and prejudices in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were echoed by Henry Ford's anti-Semitic rhetoric, I guess. When growing immigration from Europe brought Jews to the United States, it was during Ford's infancy. And in the second half of the 19th century, anti-Semitism in America changed in expression and intensity. It had peaked in the mid-1920s when the Ku Klux Klan had grown to 4 million members. Prohibition had stomped out alcohol use and discriminatory immigration policies favoring immigrants from northern and western Europe over those from other regions of the world had been adopted. Henry Ford bought the Dearborn Independent, his local newspaper, in 1918. A year and a half later, he began releasing a series of pieces alleging that America was being infected by a huge Jewish plot. 
The series continued for another 91 issues. The pieces were collected into four volumes named, quote, The International Jew, which Ford distributed to his enormous network of dealerships and subscribers, as well as publishing hundreds of copies of The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yeah, so looking at Henry Ford, pretty much between 1920 and 1927, through the Dearborn Independent, he translated the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which we are about to get into, and he kind of passed the articles along to everyone, and he stated that Jews were using communism, banking, unions, gambling, and even went on to say jazz music was weakening the American people and their culture. The entire series of articles, after they collected all, all these articles, the 90 or so, they were later published as a book which sold over half a million copies in the United States. I don't know if it was because Ford had his name on it or whatever he did was resonating. He only distributed, I think, a couple hundred copies before I think it got popular. I think he was the one that kind of incepted it into people's brains and then all of a sudden, it boom. Yeah, and he later translated it. It obviously went on to be translated into 16 different languages, obviously including German. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a big part of the anti-Semitism anti conspiracy. It's the most notorious and widely distributed anti-Semitic publication of modern times and was first written in Russia in 1903. This document, realistically, it lies about the Jews, which have been repeatedly discredited, continue to circulate today, especially on the internet, you can find this thing on Amazon. And the individuals and groups who have used the protocols are all linked by one common purpose, to spread the hatred of Jews. As I said, the work is entirely fiction. It's intentionally written to blame them for a variety of ills. The protocols describe the secret plans of Jews to rule the world by manipulating the economy, controlling the media, and fostering religious conflict. Hitler refers to the protocols in Mein Kampf. The protocols also became a part of the Nazi propaganda effort to justify persecution of the Jews. In the book, The Holocaust, The Destruction of European Jewry, from 1933 to 1945, Nora Levin states that, quote, Hitler used the protocols as a manual in his war to exterminate the Jews. Despite conclusive proof that the protocols were a gross forgery, they had sensational popularity and large sales in the 1920s and 30s. They were translated into every language of Europe and sold widely in Arab lands, the US, and England. But it was in Germany after World War I that they had their greatest success. There they were used to explain all of the disasters that had befallen the country, the defeat in the war, the hunger, the destructive inflation. We go back to that, where Germany was at the end of World War I, and the psychology, which we really get into in one of our next episodes, but the psychology of where was this country at, and if you have multiple groups trying to take the political reins, and then you start putting this stuff into the play, people are suffering, people are upset, they gotta have somebody to blame. This happens in our country all the time. This whole topic of the Holocaust and it being denied is very frightening in my eyes, just because there are kids that are very young that don't even know it happened, or in this case, don't believe that it happened. Clearly, these views are still alive and well today. We saw a demonstration in 
Charlottesville, Virginia on August 11th, 2017, where hundreds of white supremacists were marching with torches and flags, as well some of them toting weapons, and they were all shouting rhythmic war chants like, Jews will not replace us, or blood and soil, and white lives matter. Blood and soil was a key slogan of Nazi ideology. The nationalist ideology of the Artemen League and the writings of Richard Walther Dare guided agricultural policies which were later adopted by Adolf Hitler, Henrik Himmler, and Balder von Schrocksch. Let's get into our final thoughts as we come to a conclusion of part one of Holocaust Denial. Dave, tell us your thoughts so far. What can I say so far? So far, this is a, if you were to sit down with someone and ask, well, what are all your talking points? And why do you believe that this didn't happen? So far, for me, I would have unsubscribed to the conversation <laughs> like, like an hour ago. But the only thing that I can take from this is, I guess, seeing where Germany was and seeing the parallels of today and all of the prejudice and hate i don't understand it maybe because it's not part of anything that i believe in but so far i don't believe that there's a very solid foundation believing why it didn't happen so far i think that's where i'll leave it on that my thoughts on this are pretty brief because i do want to expand more once it's all said and done i know it's a little bit of a wait until we get there but i will say i do think that it happened I could also see the part of the argument where maybe numbers might be inflated. I'm not definitely going to subscribe to that, and I'm not going to say that I think that numbers were inflated, but realistically, it is something that could easily be botched, or the estimates could be off. And as we said at the beginning, there are an entire generation of survivors that are passing away. Pretty much anybody left from this era of history is kind of fading. Like Dave said, there are people that don't even know what the Holocaust is. And that's kind of a scary thing because if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it, you know, as classic saying goes. So far, I will say I believe that the Holocaust happened. And we'll see as we explore more of the facts to come in these next couple debriefings on this denial. Frank, final thoughts. Frank's final thought. I full-heartedly agree with both of your final closing statements. Gonna keep it brief because as we've stated, it is part one of three. I will guarantee that I'm gonna stand strong in my stance that the Holocaust did in fact happen throughout all three of these parts. My only takeaway from this particular part one episode is that all of the reasoning for the Holocaust deniers, I cannot get behind. None of those points in my head make any sense for explaining away the Holocaust. And like Mike said, the death rates, I wouldn't say that they're questionable, but I see how these scholars could say maybe that they're not exact, maybe they're not precise, they may have been less than what we're being told. So that's probably the only thing you could take out of it. If you're going to put things in a Venn diagram, everything goes to one side. The only one that you can kind of leave in the middle is like, well, let's talk numbers. But how are we going to figure this actual factual figure out? It's easy for the exact numbers to get lost in translation throughout the decades and decades and the millions of people. That's the only thing that may be questionable to me is the numbers. And I'm not saying that the numbers are wrong. I'm just saying 
How do you figure that number out? With the amount of people that were killed and incinerated and bodies never found, and there's got to be some sort of margin of error to that number. Maybe there's a way of keeping track of all that. Maybe there's some sort of paperwork, bookkeeping that the Nazis did. They were kind of fucked up like that. That is going to do it for Debriefing 41 Holocaust Denial Part 1. What were your thoughts? Did we miss anything? Is there anything that we should have discussed? Uh, kind of hard to say because we still have a whole lot to go. But either way, please reach out to us. Let us know. This is clearly a, a massive topic. It's going to take some time to get through. Obviously, it's going to span the next few seasons. We didn't want to drop it all into one season, and we didn't want to span it out in some weird way. So reach out to us. Email us. Let us know. Hit us up at contact at hushhushsociety.com. And please let us know your thoughts. Tune in for Debriefing 42, where we slice into the Pizzagate conspiracy. Streaming everywhere, Monday, February 14th. <laughs> Did we do that on purpose? Valentine's Day is a terrible day for this to be coming out. <laughs> Snuggle up with your significant other, grab a glass of wine, and listen to Pizzagate. Yep, it landed on Valentine's Day. It's going to be a steamy slice. Oh, God. Tell your kids to sit on the couch and listen to the Hush House Society. <laughs> Big news for our patrons, we will be releasing another exclusive debriefing where we will be investigating mercury poisoning and its impact on turning the birds homosexual. <laughs> yes, you heard it right, gay birds. The gay birds debriefing will be available on Thursday, February 17th. The frogs, now they got the birds, what's next? Thank you again for joining the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.